This week on The Sport Blokes. On this week's show, is the changing of the guard finally happening in tennis? Crazy bouts galore in the world of combat sports. Who are Jack Driver and Zach Rattray? And week four of our NBA and AFL season reviews. Let's do it. Well, the Australian International Summer of Cricket is here and we'll get there very shortly. But as we do at the top every week, what caught your attention and what'd you miss? Well, what caught my attention today was a bit of old school footy. I was at the old man's house and as is always the case, the TV was locked to one of the Foxtel sports channels. Uh, We ended up. Well, exactly right. Yeah, we, we ended up stuck on round six, the classic between Geelong and Essendon from 1993. Paul Salmon kicked 10 goals for the Triumphant Bombers. Gary Ablett had 14 goals, seven in defeat. Jeez. But what caught my attention about this was just how unbelievably different the game was. We watched nearly half the game and only saw one appeal for holding the ball. So basically no tackles with you know any sort of pressure. It was, it was just insane. Um, there was also no intentional out of bounds. There was basically no flooding, you know, just, just, yeah, no flooding at all. You pretty much just had to look at the ball to have a mark paid. I know Gary <laughs> has a bit of a history for some pretty suspect marks being paid, but I saw one where he's juggled the ball three times without it actually being in his hand once. And when it hit the ground, they paid it. So I, I kind of prefer those days in terms of the high scores, the huge marks, the massive bags, but some pretty suspect umpiring as well. <laughs> Can you imagine a bloke having 21 scoring shots in today's footy? 14 goals, oh, seven, you said. 10 is, yeah, ten, yeah, 10's amazing as oh, it is. That's but, incredible. Uh, yeah, four, 14, seven. It's, yeah. It's nuts. So. Jeez. So, yeah, that, that was what caught my attention. How about yourself, Nath? Well, I'll follow your motif, actually, Stewie. What caught my attention was the sad faux pas in the AFL world. They released the team calendars a little bit too early. Alira Lear features front and centre on the Sydney Swans one, Adam Trelaw on the Collingwood one. I think Jeremy Cameron might even appear on the GWS one. If they just waited a week, they could have printed off the right ones. Oh, dear. And we actually went into the, we attempted, I'll say attempted rather than did, some Christmas shopping on the weekend. And I actually went into the AFL store in the city. And I said, oh, so how have the calendars been selling out of interest? And the guy was like, yeah, not as good this year. And I was like, yeah, that's because the wrong players are on the front. And he was like, that would explain it. So yeah, pretty, pretty stupid stuff up from the AFL there in a year that not as much money is being made. Yeah, well, I mean, they had plenty of time. That's the thing. I mean, I know everyone wants to get these calendars out well and truly before Christmas, but yeah, geez, you've just got to look at a timeline and say, right, we're going to know by this date pretty certain who's going to be on, on which teams. Like, what, why wouldn't you wait? It makes no well, sense. Yeah, well, it's all very well being just in time for Christmas, but no one's going to buy the bloody thing, you know? I mean, mm. I was a big fan of Valir Alia, but do I really want a calendar when he's front and centre on the front page? Oh, maybe you can reminisce, I guess. <laughs> What'd you miss, mate? Well, I missed a bloody good chunk of the Aussies batting yesterday, unfortunately. So I, um, I didn't get a chance to kind of watch the, the Warner and Finch start, but uh, I did get to see the rest of the match, thankfully, which we'll obviously talk about a little bit later. There's oh, some pretty sure big will. fireworks. So yeah, uh, yeah lot, lots to discuss from that. How about yourself? Well, I'll follow your lead once again, mate. Unfortunately, I missed the uh, WBBL final because we were out Christmas shopping, as I mentioned, but it was a bit of a fizzer in the end. So it didn't seem to be that bad to miss. No, it's uh, unfortunately not one of the more high-scoring matches you'll ever see. We'll get there shortly, but first, the news roundup. 
Yeah, we'll start off, unfortunately, with a double blow to the football world this week. The tragic passings of Argentinian Diego Maradona at 60 and Senegalese midfielder Papa Buba Diop at 42. Maradona passed away after suffering a heart attack following a series of health issues. Made 491 appearances in his senior career for 259 goals and 91 matches for Argentina for 34 goals, 33 of which weren't with his hand. Um, obviously referring to the hand of God goal <laughs> in the 86 quarterfinal against uh, England. But yes. uh, no, a magnificent career and certainly someone who lived his life to the absolute fullest the uh, the entire way through in, in more ways than one. Yes, indeed. Uh, Diop unfortunately passed away after a long battle with motor neuron disease. He had a lengthy career highlighted by the winning goal against France in the opener of the 2002 World Cup and, and also being a part of the 2008 FA Cup winning Portsmouth side. So two very, very talented players. Uh, you, you'd certainly say taken too soon at those ages as well. So yes, yeah, not, a, not, a, not a great start, unfortunately. Yeah, look, Stuart, sure, obviously we never want to make light of, of a death, but uh, I, I must confess I did chuckle a little when I saw the rumours of Madonna's death trending on Twitter. Oh, dear. I think I actually heard somebody make uh, make reference to, to somebody out there saying that they loved Maradona's music once. So <laughs> it's, it's, it seems that they were they were getting confused between the two quite a bit. So from obviously a couple of very sad deaths to uh, to someone who really should be dead, the uh, ridiculous crash in the Formula One over the weekend. Yeah, sure. You're not wrong there. It's absolutely astonishing that Romain Grosjean survived an incredible crash in the Bahrain Grand Prix on the weekend. Uh, the, uh, the safety features, uh, I believe it's called the halo, <laughs> uh, ironically, or perhaps aptly. Uh, was what saved him. The car burst into a huge fireball. He managed to escape. Uh, just the footage is chilling. Uh, and it's, yeah, as I say, it's it's incredible that he somehow got out alive. Kind of almost overshadows yet another win from Lewis Hamilton as well. But uh, no, just, uh, yeah, I, I must admit, I, I was in just in awe. My jaw was basically hitting the floor watching that footage and just thinking, yeah, how does how does anyone walk out of that alive? It just it makes no sense. But as we've said a number of times with so many of these these crashes in you know the Formula One and, and obviously with the MotoGPs, uh, the the percentage of these crashes that actually do result in fatalities is is staggeringly low considering. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the safety features are quite remarkable in today's day and age. And indeed, they spend a lot of money, as they should, to protect the races. Uh, but the footage is absolutely chilling. And apparently, it's it's not without controversy. A few people, including Aussie Daniel Ricciardo, uh, teed off about it. They, they thought that the television stations were replaying the footage far too often. And they all had a pause and then a restart. And they all had to watch the footage several times before getting back in their own cars. He was very critical and, and thought that they were perhaps even uh, flogging the footage a bit too much and it probably could have waited mm. till tomorrow. So luckily nothing Agreed. worse came of it. Plenty of fighting news, Stewie, and a couple of bizarre ones too. <laughs> yeah, geez. I mean, we'll start obviously with a big one, Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. I'll admit I didn't actually see this one live, but it was a little bit farcical. I mean, some of the official rules before we even sort of, I guess, look at what happened, no knockouts. Yeah. How, how did... How do you give two of the biggest hitters in the history of boxing a no knockout rule? I, I don't know how you enforce that. That was ridiculous. And what had happened the if fight... one of them did get knocked out? What do they call it? A no result? Well, well, exactly. The fight gets stopped if there's a cut. What size cut are we talking? A paper cut? Are we talking, <laughs> you know, a guy's ear falling off or being bitten off? Yep. And then no official <laughs> judges or winner 
why are we even doing this if yeah. that's the oh, case? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's a con. It's a con. It, 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 it is. Like, initially when I'd heard that it was judged as a, an, a sort of unofficial draw, I thought, oh, here we go. They're just hamming it up so that they can get ready for the second one and make some more money off it. Setting but it, it up was for legitimately, a rematch, yeah. Yeah, but it, it was just that much of an exhibition. It's it's not funny. I mean, like from what I saw of, of the actual fight itself, I mean, it's about as good as you would expect from two guys in their 50s. Tyson very clearly won it as far as I could see, but uh, yeah, I, I just yeah, that's what I all the I'm not even all, sure everything I, really I understand heard, why everything I heard gave Tyson the points too. So I don't know why they couldn't just have a winner. And I thought Tyson looked in better shape as well than Roy Jones Jr. I oh, did definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could see it towards the end of the the, the match. Jones is it started to sit down in the corner. He's huffing and puffing. Tyson probably looked like he could go another two or three rounds pretty comfortably, but. Uh, yeah, that was that was certainly uh, a very interesting interesting match. Before that, though, as part of the undercard, we had Jake Paul and Nate Robinson. This was a really weird one. Um, yeah. Nate Robinson, a, a three-time NBA slam dunk champion and uh, 36 years old. Uh, Jake Paul, basically this YouTube sensation, which is a phrase that just makes my blood boil every time I say it. Well, he's also the brother of Logan Paul, that prick who went to Japan and filmed people hanging out of trees. And then gave a really nice contrite uh, apology video that he monetized. So, mm. yeah, I won't tar Sorry, his brother yeah. with the same brush, but if he's any, you know, anything like Logan, kind of wish Nate Robinson won. Yeah, but uh, no, look, this was this was really bad for Nate Robinson. He absolutely got his ass handed to him. <laughs> so basically, what he's done wrong, he's gone after him multiple times with a left hook or a jab, but had no defense up behind that and. Basically, every time he did that, Paul would just lean in and and counter with a you know with a, with a cross or a hook or a jab of of some sort and knocked him down three times. The third one caught him flush on the jaw, absolutely put him on the canvas. I did like Aisha Curry's tweet though. Don't care about the KO. I just think it's cool to see someone trying something new and stepping out of their comfort zone. That's dope and inspiring. You don't have to be one thing. I never want to live a life where I look back and say that I didn't try something I wanted. Thought that was pretty cool. Well, it's probably the only nice tweet there was. I saw several others giving him shit. The funniest one was probably, uh, I can't remember who it was, but they said typical that he was wearing Nick's colors. Kind of sums <laughs> yep. it up. Yeah. I used to be I mean, stuck Joel on the and, canvas. Yeah. And Joel Embiid's night night was pretty, uh, was pretty brutal as well. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Twitter world does not uh, does not have any sort of quit or any chill, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and then probably the craziest one though was this one between Darina Mazduk and Grigory Kristiakov. Probably, so, Stewie. Probably. Okay. Well, okay. Well, definitely. <laughs> All right. So, so to set the scene for people who haven't seen this, Mazduk is a professional fighter. She's sixty-two kilograms, so she's tiny. And Chris Yakov is a basically a YouTube blogger. He's 240 kilograms, so he's a big unit. Obviously, a very big publicity stunt. But look, I mean, the, the actual fight itself was was somewhat secondary. I mean, it took about 90 seconds. Before oh, it was farcical. She, yeah, yeah, she had him on his stomach and basically laid into him with punches before he tapped out. Yeah. But what I did read was apparently his motivation for the fight was a change in lifestyle, which obviously at that size. He's at a stage where things are starting to get a bit serious. You know, he lost one of his friends due to, I, I believe it was some sort of um, some sort of respiratory problem or something like that. He was 190 kilos, so he's obviously looked at himself and said, "Right, I need to make a change." And 
the first step of that obviously is getting in the ring and running around with a professional fighter, which I think is a, is a great step. And I, I wish it is well also a major heart attack risk, but uh, yeah, maybe True. he made a lot of money from the fight, which he can then put towards a personal trainer or something. And a lot of lap band surgeries and stuff like that. But uh, no, it looked good on him. It's, it's great to see someone. And that, that first step is always the hardest from what I hear. So good mm. for him. Mm. Now we move on to a bit of state of origin. It's been a couple of weeks since it happened, but we'll yeah, uh, round out with a third. That's right. It's a little bit old news now, but obviously we had our NBA special last week, so we didn't talk about anything but NBA last week. Although the state of origin was all tied up heading into the decider, few would have expected the Maroons to get the win after New South Wales 34-10 to 10 smashing in Game 2. As I always say, though, there's a reason they play the games, and in a brutal third contest, Queensland came up series victors after a 20-14 to 14 victory at Suncorp Stadium. Queensland drew first blood five minutes into the game thanks to Val Holmes after a New South Wales penalty and never looked back. Queensland's Cam Munster was player of the series, while New South Wales' Nathan Cleary and Josh Adokar were the top point and try scorer with 18 and 4, respectively. Yeah, I must admit, I I wasn't expecting that result. (laughs) Certainly, you thought after game one it might have happened, but after the second, yeah, it it very much looked like New South Wales were going to run away with it and uh, a, a very surprising result and look it's yeah great to see great to see the maroons doing doing well again oh they were overwhelming favorites the the blues and and i indeed there was a lot of trolling going on and they might regret that now (laughs) Mm -hmm. from uh from new south wales fans and ex-greats and that so yeah no always be careful and always wait till that final whistle (laughs) before you throw those jabs yep games aren't played on paper they're played on fields and courts some games must be played on paper though uh well noughts and crosses i guess yeah there you go so stewie it's what we've all been waiting for australia's international summer of cricket is finally upon us hallelujah (laughs) yes indeed but before we get there let's we've got to talk about the wbbl because that's been an exciting and interesting competition as well Before I get to the final, though, I've got to mention a huge 48-ball century to the Sydney Sixers opener, Alyssa Healy. She ended up with 111 off 51, and it was her fourth hundred in her 87 WBBL career. 15 fours and six sixes. She was caught on the boundary by Nat Siver. I just wish I saw it. What a knock. Mm, unbelievable I mean we we all know that she has that unbelievable power and that amazing ability to accelerate through her innings and yeah anytime you're talking about a century under about probably 70 balls we're talking about something pretty special but when you're talking under 50 that is just it's next level it's it's certainly not something you see every day it's not something you see every year quite frankly so oh, it's incredible um, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it fairly fairly soon. But obviously, we were talking about the um, the amazing efforts of Steve Smith over the uh, over the weekend, and his weren't even close to those uh, those sorts of numbers. So, yeah, well done, Alyssa. And look, I'm not a fan of eugenics. There's not a sentence you say every week, but she is married to Mitch Stark. So, uh, can you imagine the uh, young tackers they could be producing? Oh, well, we've got to keep the fingers crossed, don't we? <laughs> But anyway, sadly, the WBBL final wasn't quite as exciting. After chasing all season long, which was good enough for top of the table and an 8-3 record, Meg Lanning decided to get runs on the board in a final to put her team, the Stars, into bat. Unfortunately for them, the team could only muster a mere 9 for 86 off their 20 overs. Ismail and Johnson getting two wickets each for the Thunder, with the rest of the bowlers getting one each. And Sydney came home in a canter, having only lost three wickets with more than six overs remaining. 
Yeah, it kind of follows on quite well from the origin, really, when you look at it. I mean, everyone was expecting the Melbourne Stars to win. They had dominated the competition all season. And yeah, they just got their pants pulled down by the thunder, really. I mean, it does kind of go back to the first thing you mentioned about Meg Lanning winning the toss and inexplicably deciding to to bat first. The last time she won a toss and chose to bat was in BBL2, which was the end of 2016. So it, wow. it tells you how rare that is. And if you look at the stats, this season, the Stars have chased six times and won six times. Yeah, exactly. They were doing it and all before, season. Yeah, and they'd batted first six times and only won three. So I, I don't know why you would chase, but you could see how curious a decision it was. They, they interviewed Trevor Griffin, who's the coach of the Thunder, and they asked him about it, and he nearly burst out laughing. He was that surprised. So wow. it, it was a, yeah, a very, very curious decision. I mean, the Stars previously had low scores of 93 and 120, which were both scores that they'd made in wins chasing so i mean what a time to shit the bed basically <laughs> it's just <laughs> yeah well far phenomenal. too often we see disappointing finals don't we often often one team will run roughshod over the other and this was no different unfortunately but the, the crazy thing about it was that the thunder could have actually restricted them further their fielding was actually pretty poor i think they dropped maybe six catches they missed a fairly easy run out the stars were probably lucky to make 70 as it was. So, um, so yeah, just an all round really, really weird final. What the Thunder did do amazingly though, was their bowling. Shabnim Ismail, she set the tone early. She bowled her four overs right from the start, straight out of the gates. She ended up with two for 12 off her four overs. They just couldn't get her away. They, they were struggling to even rotate the strike. She managed to get the key wickets of Elise Villani, who was out for one off 11, as well as Meg Lanning. Sammy Joe Johnson had the ball talking. She ended up with two for 11 off her four um, and managed to get the real prize scalp of Mignon Dupree's. 66 dot balls, though, out of 120. Mm. That's just nuts. I mean, the Stars yeah, couldn't get any sort of rhythm. And, and yeah, that was it. It's a disappointing end to a really great WBBL campaign. There was that Alyssa Healy innings as i just mentioned there were several really good catches some great batting and bowling performances so the wbbl was really going from strength to strength hopefully next year we'll have a better final yeah i think so and and obviously hopefully by then we should have you know the ability to move around a little bit more freely and th- there full might crowds. be a few more games yeah, f- yeah full crowds games being played in in all corners of, of australia as well so uh, yeah yeah you're, you're right it was a little bit of a shame that the the final wasn't wasn't quite as exciting as the rest of the, the series, but yeah, definitely an amazing show put on by the girls. So let's get on to the one dayers, shall we, for the blokes? Yep. Now there are a lot of parallels, so I'll go through both before we kind of talk about them holistically. Australia won the toss and opted to bat in both matches, scoring six for 374 in the first. Finch had 114 off 124. Steve Smith had 105 off 66, getting the third quickest ODI ton for his efforts. And Davey Warner also chimed in with a 69 off 76. For India, Muhammad Shami was the only one who had an economy under six, the pick of the bowlers with three for 59. Hardik Panja had a 90 off 76, and Dawan had a 74 off 86 in India's reply, eight for 308, which was decent because uh, I believe the highest chase score at the uh, SCG in a one day is about 330-ish. So it was always going to be a mammoth total to chase. And indeed, it happened again in match two yesterday. So Smitty again had another ton, 104 off 64, got his ton off the same amount of balls as the first match, 62, nearly didn't play because he had vertigo, which makes it even more impressive. 
Uh, David Warner had an 83 off 77. Manus Labashain had a 70. Glenn Maxwell had a 63. Pretty, pretty poor reading for the Indians, really. Four for 389 off the 50. Three, three wickets and a run out. In reply, a lot of starts for the Indians. Virat Kohli had an 89. KL Rahul had a 76. Paddy Cummins, the pick of the bowlers, with three for 67. Zampa ch- chimed in with a two for 62. Yeah, look... Utter domination from the Aussies to start their summer of cricket. Admittedly, this isn't an Indian side at full strength. They're missing Rohit and Ishant Sharma, but very impressively constructed wins. And interestingly, as you said, the second was basically a carbon copy of the first. So I think uh, what is amazing about this is just how well Warner and Finch were able to to sort of lay down these perfect foundation partnerships, just playing balls on their merit, going after things that were slightly off. I mean, if you look at it, Steve Smith was able to come in at one for 156 and one for 142 in the two matches. So he was able to get his eye in his acceleration. We often talk about the acceleration of an innings, but the way that he was able to accelerate. And I mean, in the first one, I think he was 30 or 31 or somewhere there, there or thereabouts and was then able to go off. And as you said, get that ton off 62. So basically he's gone for 70 runs off about 30, which is insane. Well, it was Um, the perfect time for the anchor to come in, isn't it? When you've got about a hundred runs on the board, that's a great time for the anchor to come in, as you say, push it around for a while and then really accelerate at the back end. I actually got to see quite a bit of the first match. I didn't think I'd get to see any, but I forgot that it was my Christmas lunch that kind of wrapped up at about three. 30. So I actually got to see the end of the Aussie innings and probably about the first 20 overs of the India innings. I'll tell you what, we, we gave them a real shot because Mitch Stark was bowling absolute pies in the first over. And so they had 20 off the first over in response. But Adam Zampa had a forfer, which I neglected to mention before, even though he wasn't turning it at all. <laughs> I think only his wrong ones were turning a little bit. And uh, yeah, uh, a, a pretty comprehensive win in that first match. The, the, the thing I love about Smitty, there was a shot he played in that first match hit a glorious cover drive, one bounce into the fence for four, and then he's really angry at himself that it wasn't a six. And that sums him up. The amount of times, like, he'll hit a two and he's pissed off with himself it's not a four. He'll hit a four and he's pissed off with himself it's not a six. That man just holds himself in such high standards, doesn't he? He really does. He really does. One of the things I I did also, I mean, I've got a few talking points that that we kind of need to get to, but... I guess for me, the big thing that that really kind of set the two sides apart actually might be the Glenn Maxwell innings. Because if you look at at both of those those matches, I mean, he had a 45 off 19 in the oh, first yeah. one and, a, and 63 off 29 in the second. And Ed Cowan in commentary said he played a reverse ramp shot in that first innings. Like, oh, oh it's a shame I mean, he didn't he, get a, ton, a half ton. He plays everything, but but that's I think that's the big thing is if you look at India, I mean, okay, Hardik Pandya definitely has the ability to play that sort of role. Maybe not quite a swashbuckling sort of sort of shots, but yeah, I think India really got off to great starts, but ultimately that scoreboard pressure that was sort of created by the Maxwell innings at the back end of, of both of the Australian innings, that's kind of the big difference. Um, we started accelerating in an upward trajectory and India kept kind of going the same way that they were. And, and unfortunately, before they knew it, it had gone from eight and a half, nine and over to 14, 15. And it's, oh, yeah, it can over, get out of control so. real quick, can't it, when you're in a big chase? It can. Um, I did also, I know you mentioned, uh, obviously, in the second match, the uh, the pick of the bowlers. I actually think Moises Enriques was was unlucky not to be uh, named as that. Oh, and when he took a blinder talk- of a catch too. Jeez. Oh, he, yeah, he he won up Smitty, which is very, very hard to do, yeah, just as Coley was looking to. Yeah. yeah. 
But if you look at how many guys were going at like eight, nine and over, and then he comes in in those, those key middle overs and goes for 4.85 across his, I think it was seven. That's, that's huge. You got the key wicket of SSI just as he was starting to tee off as well. So yeah, I think him coming in and bowling when he did and bowling the sort of lines and lengths that he did not going for, for boundaries as well. I think he was a, a really, really crucial part to that, that sort of bowling effort by the Aussies really and it's got to be mentioned the only reason he was playing was because of an injury to Marcus Stoinis and injuries are a big big storyline here because Davey Warner's done a groin and he's going to be in doubt for that first test because it's only 17 days away yeah I think from what I've heard and all all reports are basically that he'll be out until the second test now so yeah the the minute I saw it I thought if that's a groin that's three or four weeks and it was very innocuous I don't know if you saw it 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 wasn't Mm. you know it wasn't didn't look terrible, but that's they're often the ones that can result in lengthy stays on the bench, can't they? Yep, exactly. So I guess the first question, who do you go with as a replacement? Well, Darcy Short's coming into the team for the one days in the T20s. That makes complete sense. It's now looking in the test arena, what would have been a pick between Burns and Pekofsky, and you and I have both uh, very much in the Pekofsky camp. Well, they might be opening together, but I also saw people on Twitter saying, bring back Sean Marsh. And, you know, he's a real zombie, isn't he? Because he could rise from the dead once again. He's had a really good shield so far this season. He has. He has. I actually uh, had a bit of a chuckle, though, with Shane Warne's comments where he was sort of saying, well, maybe Will Pekofsky can choose who he wants to bat with now. (laughs) Yeah, that was curious, wasn't it? Davey Warner's really put a vote of confidence in for Joe Burns. But as the mastermind of Sandpapergate, I don't know if he can really be dictating to the selectors like that. No, exactly. I must say, though, I actually would have liked to have seen Matty Wade come in and open with Aaron Finch. That left-right combination, Wade opens for Tasmania. You don't have to do anything else with the batting order. I don't mind Darcy Short coming in for for the T20s. I mean, again, he hasn't really had an amazing run, but uh, he had a couple of decent ones, I guess, in the in the, the Sheffield Shield. But, well, he's certainly yeah. got the talent. He, he does have the talent. and he's, he's one of these guys like Chris Lynn as well who – yeah, I mean, I know Lynn's a little bit past it, although he just, I think he just had a 156 off 52 or something the other day, which, uh, which is phenomenal. So there's a lot of guys making runs, as we seem to be saying every week. So now the other thing about that that I did want to just quickly address was the pretty poor comments from KL Rahul, who, who said, nice if he gets injured for a long time. Now, yes. All I, I can don't say to that is, was... I hope karma's a bitch. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't think that was sort of how he meant it. I think what he was saying is it's almost, it's maybe a relief that they don't have to bowl to him because he's in pretty good form right now. But um, yeah, I think maybe what he meant to say was, yeah, it'll, it'll be nice not to have to worry about him. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just the way it's come out is, is really poor, unfortunately. Now, I guess the next thing to quickly talk about is the overrate debacle, mm. uh, especially from game one, but certainly the second one, we still had the same issue. So yeah. I guess the, the first question, did you actually know that game one technically went 10 minutes past the SCG light curfew? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. There was a lot of chatter about it on the in the commentary, though. A lot. And geez, if we're worried about the one day game dying, this is the sort of shit that will kill it. Exactly. I mean, I mean, people were leaving. They had to switch off the stadium sound to avoid breaking local bylaws. <laughs> like Jeez. it was, it was not a great spectacle. 
you've got guys like Steve Smith saying it was the longest 50 overs they've ever spent. I think India were, were bowling for about four uh, four hours and six minutes, which yeah, is that's ridiculous. a long time over. Yeah, I mean, India were fined 20% of their match fee for this, but then they went 31 minutes overtime in the second as well. So mm. I know that the ICC is going to give India a bit of leeway, but I mean, surely there has to be a bit more of a penalty for it happening again, literally two days later. Well, and apparently there are a lot of uh, hats and helmet changes in that first match that was leading to the poor overrate. So even though India were bowling, Australia was, was were culprits too. So I think both teams need to lift ah, their game, okay. to be honest. Yeah. I didn't see that in the little bit I saw of the end of the innings. I had to listen to a lot of it on the radio, you know, prior to getting in front of a telly. But uh, yeah, that's what the commentators were talking about. Now, the third thing I guess we have to talk about is Mitch Stark. Now, I know you mentioned it a, a little bit ago, yeah. but yeah, what is happening with him right now? Yeah, not good. So obviously you mentioned the 11 ball first over in game one that cost 20 runs. Second worst opening over in ODI history, just too short of the record there. It's got to be said though, Stuart, he had a great comeback because he only went for 65 in the end off his nine. So it was an economy of 7.22. So it wasn't actually the highest economy for the team. So if it went for that woeful first over, he actually would have had really tidy figures. Yeah, look, there's something to be said for the way that he's he's come back. But obviously, at the end of the day, people are going to look at that bottom line. And it wasn't a great start. And certainly, it, it gave India a little bit of hope. Uh, to make your point further, though, Stewie, his economy was 9.11 yesterday. So, so he didn't back it up well. That's it. And he even managed to pick up a wicket, but bowled that off a no ball. So mm. it's uh, it's not particularly great. And I was actually going to suggest that they, they rest Stark for the third to give someone like a Sean Abbott or a Cameron Green a run. But it seems that Cummins is actually being rested for the third. So unfortunately, yeah, right. something we're going to probably have to have to stick with him. Just a quick sidetrack, though. While I was looking for records and things like that around these, I saw something absolutely fucking nuts. Now, in 2017, there was a match in Bangladesh between Laomatia Club and Axiom Cricketers. Now, Laomatia made 88, so not a great score. Axiom chased it down in 0.4 overs. What? 0.4 overs. So, Sujon, yeah, Sujon Mahmood was bowling. He bowled three no balls and 13 wides, all of which went to the boundary. That's match fixing. It's got to be. Yes, it was. It was. Yeah. Um, The four legal balls that he bowled were all put away for four as well. So only one batsman actually faced a delivery in successfully chasing down 88. He was apparently protesting some poor umpiring in the the first dig. But yeah, basically he was just taking the piss and he was suspended for a very, very long period of time for it. But I just thought like, isn't, isn't that crazy being able to chase down 88 or four deliveries? Wow. Well, that foreshadows some more taking the piss in this week in sport later on the show. So so good yes, one there, but bloody hell. It, it does, exactly. Um, and one other random thing that I, I noticed as well, did you see the graphic during the first match that showed the top five batsmen for 2020 in terms of runs? I can't say that I did. Well, get this. Finch first, Labashane third, Warner fourth, Smith fifth. So you'd think that the person in number two would be one of the big names, you know, a, a Virat Kohli or, I don't know, Barbara Ben Azam. Stokes or, or, yeah, Barbara Azam, one of those guys. Interestingly enough, though, the guy at number two is a guy named Akib Ilyas from Oman. Oh. So really great to see some of those lesser-known teams making strides and actually starting to, I guess, legitimize their their, their cricket teams a, a little bit more. And, and these are the sorts of teams that a lot of people aren't actually going to want to face 
as much as they used to because they're going to give him a pretty decent run. Well, we think about how worth mentioning. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, we think about how far Bangladesh has come, how how far Afghanistan's come. So it's great Ireland, for world cricket. Ireland and yeah, Ireland yeah, and yeah. Scotland have, have had some good runs. So yeah, great. So yeah, definitely some some really really cool stuff going on in the world of cricket right now. Yes, indeed. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week takes us back to the 23rd of November and a pair of absolutely insane knocks in Victorian grade cricket. So the first story comes from the Geelong Cricket Association Division 2 first match between Geelong City and Bell Park. So Bell Park batted first. They made 192. Definitely a defendable score. And I guess largely thanks to Sundries being the second top scorer on 34, including 20 wides. Wow. Now, in reply, Geelong City were 8 for 170 after the 49th over, so they needed 23 to win off the last over. Things weren't looking great, and they were even worse when the number 10, Adam Marsland, was bowled with the first ball of the over. So number 11, John Collins, comes to the crease and manages to push a single off the second ball, leaving it up to Jack Driver needing at least three sixes and a four to win the match. Amazingly, though, with three different bowlers with overs left and economy figures of 3.2 runs or less, Bell Park was bowling a guy named Daniel McLean who had gone for 46 off his five overs, so not a great choice. Driver hit the third and fourth ball of that over for six, leaving nine off two to win. He then played and missed at the next ball, so you would think it was over, but it was called a wide by the substitute umpire, who happened to be Driver's teammate Tom Treble. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh yes, dear. yes. Yep. Yeah, the regulation umpire had been hospitalised after he knocked himself out getting into position to uh, to judge a run out. So not a, uh, not a great uh, story for him. And then after all of that, he hits the last two balls for six and wins the game. So <laughs> absolutely it's, crazy. It's shades of punter throwing the ball to Mick Lewis in that horrible match against South Africa that we lost after putting all those runs on. Oh, God. What was that? None for 113 off his 10 or something? Oh. That was ridiculous. Got him out of the team, that's for sure. It's funny you mentioned that. I was down the pub watching. I saw I caught, I caught probably about 60 overs of the match yesterday. We were down at the Inglewood, and I bumped into a bloke I work with who plays grade cricket, and he was saying that uh, the umpire in his match on Saturday was an American bloke who had proudly exclaimed that he'd never seen a full game of cricket in his life and gave four LBWs to both teams. Wow. Mm. <laughs> that's not great. Gotta love grade cricket. Well, from uh, from a lot of wickets to, well, a lot of runs. The other crazy story comes from the Southeast Cricket Association D-grade matchup between Cheltenham Park and the Melbourne Dazzlers, where My batting favorite. first opener Zach Rattray blasted 208 Jeez. from just 65 deliveries. <laughs> 12 fours and 23 sixes. Oh Amazingly... Gosh. It was his first ever century, which he brought up off just 35 balls, and then he bettered that with a 27-ball second 100. So not great. The the Dazzlers used eight bowlers trying everything to get him out. Six of them went at more than 10 and over, including four overs for 76 runs from Riyashad Chowdhury. The Dazzlers were then bowled out for 133, so they lost a one-day by 291 runs. So if he took just the sixes that Rattray hit, he would have still won the match on his own. Ouch. Drinks on him. So for four sixes to win a match and a super quick fire double ton, all I can say is bloody, bloody hell. (laughs) Bloody hell. Bloody hell. So basketball, Stewie. 
Yeah, we've got to start off in the NBL with uh, our favorite team, the Tasmanian Jack Jumpers. Oh, yes. Oh, it just, it's funny every time you say it. They, uh, they actually had their brand reveal video that came out last week. So they've released a 90-second brand reveal video. It's almost as ridiculous as a gender reveal. So what it does, it shows an ant rising up from beneath the ground and playing basketball against this big guy. It was kind of like a Matt Hodgson type, you know, big lanky sort of guy. And it's all done in the sort of animation style you'd expect from a gorilla's film clip or something like that. So they refer to the Jack Jumpers as fierce in spirit and feared by many. Yeah, that's... Wouldn't... Feared by many? Yeah. Don't set the bar too high, boys. And... Like, who the fuck is worried about getting dunked on or blocked by an ant? That is also, that's the other question. Mm. Um, but then they're ready to loom large on a global stage. What, why? why? Why can't they just be excited about being on a Back stage in, the NBL. in yeah. Tasmania or mm. the rest of Australia? Like, no one in Paris is going to know who you are. No one in New York is going to know who you are unless they're adding your, your name to a list of hilarious, ridiculous names. So... <laughs> I, the the only cool thing to come out of it is their slogan, join the march. I do like that. I think that's quite clever. So, Shui, while we're in the NBL, we've got a few different bits and pieces going on in our national competition. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different stuff going on. So, I mean, obviously the first one, which is quite big, uh, John Wall from the Washington Wizards is brought into the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix, which uh, is, is absolutely amazing. Victor Oladipo was another one that added his name to the list recently. We've had Al Harrington... Uh, one of the Ball brothers was rumoured, although that never happened. But it seems like it's going to be something that continues. Yeah, it definitely looks like the relationship between the NBL and the NBA is getting stronger and stronger every year. I mean, obviously, oh, yeah. the, the fact that we've we've had those those sort of cross matches in the last couple of seasons, we didn't get it this year, obviously because of COVID. But the um, next stars yeah, program, just, yeah, the next stars program. It's been a been a really really nice last sort of three years i guess for the relationship between the two leagues so um and i guess continuing with that we've had a couple of aussies well certainly players that played in the nbl last season making their move across so uh, the first one was will magnay from the brisbane bullets he signed a two-way contract with the new orleans pelicans yeah that's great i mean we, t- we talked about it earlier in the year kind of assuming that it was only a matter of time before he got into the nba so great excellent defensive player possibly the best defensive player we've produced in a while. So there's every reason to believe that he could have a decent career in the NBA following in many others' footsteps. Yeah, I guess I immediately think back to someone like a Simon Dwight who the NBA was trying to coax him across for quite a while. Unfortunately, they, they weren't able to. It would have been great to see what he could have done over there. But Magne has that that really, really great timing and that great shot-blocking ability, which is something that the Pelicans will need off the bench. So I, th- I think it's great to see that. And joins a really exciting team there with Zion Williamson. So I think uh, much like the Charlotte Hornets were big in Australia in the 90s, not because Aussies were on the team, but I think uh, the former Hornets, the New Orleans, now Pelicans, I think will be quite an exciting and attractive team to many young Aussies. And then if you look at the other one, Jay Sean Tate, who played with the Sydney Kings last season, he's actually signed a three-year contract with the Houston Rockets. So really great stuff coming out of the NBL. Uh, he probably won't be playing with an amazing team, although I guess we still don't know what's happening with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. They may still stay, but uh, just just nice to see him get a get a gig. And and as you mentioned last week, I think Cam Oliver is one who will probably be going over at some stage. Surely he has to. to oh well, that's guy. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. You know, great, good on Joe Sean Tate. You know, he's a decent player, but Oliver's better. <laughs> mm. I still can't understand why he hasn't been picked up. Yep, that's it. 
And then we'll finish off the NBL with just a, a quick congratulations to Tim Conrad of the Hawks, who's retired after 11 years and 310 games in the NBL. He definitely had one of the sneakier, impressive careers, 38% guy from deep. I don't know about you, Nathan, but he was one of those guys when he had the ball with space, I, I just used to clench expecting he was going to make like 95% of them. Yeah, we've had the wood on uh, the Hawks for many years, but he certainly, you know, had a very good career and a lengthy career too. So joining guys like uh, Saville and... Uh, Matty, Matty Campbell. Yeah, Matty Campbell. So yeah, another really uh, long-tenured Hawk player and and good on him. Great career. Now, before we head across to America, I think you had a little something you wanted to talk about with the WNBL. Yeah, that's right. I Unfortunately, and look, this has been a big talking point. The ODIs haven't been on free-to-air television. So before my girlfriend got home and we went down to the pub to watch, uh, as I said, about 60 overs of the second ODI on Sunday, I got to see a lot of the Sydney Townsville WNBL game and Shyla Hill. And boy, has she come in leaps and bounds since I first saw her in person at a Lynx game I went to. Uh, she is looking very good and absolutely no surprise she's on the WNBA radar you know, just like her old man, savvy little point guard, likes to take a shot as well. But uh, I think she could have a very, very good career in the WNBA. So that's exciting there too. Mm, great to hear. And Townsville came back from a decent margin too. So hats off to them. Should we get stuck into our review and look forward, Stewie, in the NBA this time with the Atlantic Division? Well, actually, before we get into that, I actually wanted to have a little bit of fun with something. So one of the things that I've noticed on ESPN recently is that they've done a lot of work around showing off some of these new jerseys that have been released by teams. Um, funnily enough, one of them was a New Jersey jersey, but uh, <laughs> I guess some of, the, some of the updated jerseys is probably the best way to put it. And I, we actually had a bit of a look at that earlier tonight. I just I thought it'd be, be a bit of fun to very quickly go through some of the favourites and some of the not-so-favourites that uh, that we saw from them. And I did actually want to start the good column with your San Antonio Spurs. So I'm all about a throwback jersey. I love the Spurs paying homage to that sort of 1995 Vinny Del Negro Spurs team with the the blue, pink, and orange stripes. I think this is what the youngins would call straight fire is, uh, <laughs> is, is the phrase. I'm probably using that wrong, but whatever uh good on you for calling it the Vinny del negro spurs i like to think of it as the chuck person spurs thank you very much but uh, uh yeah the, the fiesta uh, no, colors or the moses malone spurs yeah <laughs> yep. yeah but the fiesta colors are back and i've got to say i looked at, at the pictures as well they're one of the few good ones they are yes exactly right uh, i'll go through a couple of other ones the philadelphia 76ers they they've gone with sort of a, a black uh, background with a guess like a little skyline one of the things i love about it though if for no other reason you've got to love them hiding ttp in the outline of, the, of one of the houses basically paying tribute to trust the process which i thought was really really cool yeah that's um, about the only good thing about the jersey i've got to say but in well, my opinion but. the uh, the portland trailblazers i love the retro look to this one they've used oregon instead of instead of portland but it looks as if it belongs to a team from the 60s maybe called like the oregon earthworms or I the oregon know, donors Oregon donors, yeah, that would work as well. Um, and then honourable mention, the New Jersey Nets 90s throwbacks were absolutely beautiful. And the Dallas Mavericks 80s throwbacks, I was always a big fan of that. Reminds me of guys like Roy Tarpley and Rolando Blackman and Brad Davis, those sorts of guys. So uh, I quite liked those. The Golden State Warriors throwbacks were there too, Stewie. They were pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was like a, a, a late 90s sort of throwback, I guess, maybe to like the Antoine Jameis and Monte Ellis sort of. Uh, Aaron sort of Davis, era. that team that upset Dallas in the first round. Yes, that year. the We Believe Warriors. That's right. Yeah, the Don Nelson. Yeah. 
Now, the bad list is probably going to be a little bit longer, unfortunately. I know you're oh, not yes. a massive fan of a lot of these. No, not at all. I guess, I guess the three that I wasn't a huge fan of, the Boston Celtics one, trying to fit the whole team name above the number instead of just the nickname makes them look really cheap. Yep. Kind of like something someone paid 20 bucks for to use in their rec league team. Yep. The Denver Nuggets, I liked the design of it. Very similar to last season's design, but the color choice makes no sense. It kind of looks like a Utah Jazz jersey. Which I thought was a bit, a bit mad. Well, this and this is a trend, Stewie. Like so many teams using different teams' colors. Like, what the hell are they doing? Yep, the Orlando Magic's another one of those. They've gone Ugh. with the old school '90s design, but they've colored it in orange. Which, okay, it's the state fruit of Florida, but but whoopty fucking do! You're a basketball team, not a fresh produce company. Mm. And then the other one was the New Orleans Pelicans. It's a really, really simple design. They've used three of these fleur-de-lis, uh, which are the little three-pronged thingies. Kind of look like a flower, I guess. The Saints logo. And then logo. a number yeah. with... Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, this, the New Orleans Saints logo. Uh, and then a number with no team name. It kind of looks like a, an early All-Star jersey, but not one of the good ones. So no, no, they're terrible. Wasn't wasn't great. I was kind of indifferent on the Phoenix Suns. I like the design use of the the Valley, but I'm indifferent about it because it looks like the New Zealand Breakers jersey. And as a Wildcats fan, we've got a healthy rivalry with them, so <laughs> I automatically shouldn't like it. Yeah, look, Stewie, I don't think they've gone far enough. Uh, I think they should be more confusing. I think uh, more teams should use other teams' colours. Uh, I know they've got a lot of money to make, so why not have a different uniform each night? Um, perhaps New York could have Phoenix's colours one night and then the Lakers the next. Uh, why have any continuity with jerseys at all? Let's blow it up. They and should They should borrow each other's game. names as well. Like yeah, the Utah oh, Jazz. yeah, yeah. Utah Jazz, they can play as the uh, as the Sheboygan Redskins one night. And... <laughs> the Zona, right. so, Zona Pistons. The Zona Pistons. So, so I guess the summation is you're not a fan of much of that. No, oh, it's a cynical way to make money. And look, I appreciate that they lost a lot of money, so they do need to recoup a lot of money. And I know you're a, you're a Jersey fan too, so I shouldn't, uh, you know, I should tread no, no. lightly. Oh, I know you like collecting jerseys, but uh, yeah, I think it's a bit of a cynical. Hideous. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we'll move on to the Atlantic Division review. Now, the good thing about this is we don't actually have to talk about it as much as usual because we kind of discussed a lot of these teams last week. So, um, so yeah, I guess you can take it away with the Toronto slash Tampa Bay Raptors. <laughs> yes, well, they finished top of the division. They didn't. They weren't the most successful team in the division, but they did have the best record, fifty-three and nineteen. Again, excellent record after Kawhi lost. They lost to the Boston Celtics four-three in the conference semis. Their longest winning streak was fifteen between the sixteenth of January and the eleventh of Feb. I think that might have been best for the league actually. The longest losing streak was three games twice. They went seven and one in the bubble prior to the playoffs, so they would have been quite optimistic. But alas, it didn't go well for them. And the offseason hasn't gone much better because they've lost both Mark Gasol and Serge Ibaka. So there go the big man stocks. Yeah, I guess, I mean, a season in review, definitely, as we said, they were the real surprise packets. Finishing two games better off through 72 games without Kawhi Leonard, that says a lot about the team. And it says a lot about Nick Nurse as a coach. I think he is an absolute genius as a coach. I think a lot of this comes down to, I guess, how lethal they were from deep. Fifth best team in the league in terms of percentage from three, from three-point line. Third most makes per game as well, behind only Houston and Dallas. Look, they ran the Celtics close in game seven. I mean, they were down two with 34 seconds left. They just needed to secure a rebound off a missed free throw, and maybe they're the ones facing the heat in the conference finals. So this could very easily have gone quite differently, I guess, for the, for the Raptors. 
yeah, as you say, unfortunately, though, things haven't gone amazingly. The, the big shining light is that they managed to keep Fred Van Vliet. Yeah, so. that's right. It's not all bad. They, they kept Van Vliet and they also got Aaron Baines. So they do have a decent centre there. Yeah, look, I think Baines is a, a really, really good replacement for Marcus Gasol. He's become a, a really great stretch five. He was a real bargain, even at the price that they paid for him. You just kind of hope that Siakam and Van Vliet continue to develop. And then some of these guys on rookie contracts like Chris Boucher, Terrence Davis and Matt Thomas can maybe take the next step. Well, they really need them to, Stewie, because Kyle Lowry's 34 now. So he's getting on in age. So they really need those young guys to start to come through. And uh, there's optimism. Yeah, I think, I think this could be a very interesting season in Cigar City for the Raptors. So next was the team that beat them, the Boston Celtics, 48-24. and 24. They lost to Miami 4-2 in the conference finals. Their longest winning streak was 10 games between October 26 and November 16. The longest losing streak was three games twice. They exploded out of the gates to start the season, going 10-1 and after losing their first game. And speaking of losing, they lost a pretty big player. Yes, that's right. Brad Wanamaker went to the Golden State Warriors, so... <laughs> <laughs> and Gordon Hayward went to Charlotte. Of, of course. Now, look, we won't talk about Boston too much because obviously we spoke about them quite uh, quite a decent length last season. Look, the Celtics will outwardly talk about last season as a failure uh, just purely because of the talent that they had on their team. The elite teams in the East just had better chemistry. That's why Toronto nearly knocked them off and why Miami handled them pretty easily. They just had too many guys on their team. And I know Hayward wasn't the Utah version of himself, but he just always seemed like the odd man out. And could this potentially be addition by subtraction in terms of getting rid of him and opening up a little bit more of the ball for guys like Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, you know, the the the, uh, the Kemba Walkers, those sorts of players? Yeah, I think in the short term, they might take a bit of a step back. But I think in the long term, they'll be glad that they're not hooked up to that contract for the next four years. Yep. Definitely. The big one for me, though, Christian Wood was actually linked to the Celtics, which would have been huge for them if they could have picked him up. Tristan Thompson and Jeff Teague may be past their prime, but not too bad to get some veteran leadership. They're a really young team outside of Walker and now Teague and Thompson. They're incredibly young. Next, we have Philadelphia, 43-30. and 30. They were swept by Boston in the first round, decimated by injuries in the end. Their longest winning streak was five twice. The longest losing streak was four twice. They've had a real facelift of a team. Embiid and Simmons have remained, but a lot of new faces at the uh, 76ers. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the numbers don't really tell the full story. I mean, if you look at this season, 43-30, and 30, it looks okay. It was an absolutely hideous season for them to the point where there was everyone calling to blow it up and fire Brett Brown, which they've done and, and sort of move on from what they had. But if you look at the season, Ben Simmons missed 16 games as well as their first round sweep to Boston and struggled with back injuries. Exactly. Josh Richardson missed 18. Joel Embiid missed 22. They couldn't shoot to save themselves. So basically you have all these injuries and they lost all of their good shooters from the previous season. And Brett Brown so, was really a scapegoat for the front office. They did not surround Simmons and Embiid with three-point shooters. No, exactly. The Al Horford experiment kind of blew up in their face. I mean, his numbers weren't horrendous, but he just could never get into the flow of the offense and probably should have played less. There's not really a shining light on this team except maybe Alec Burks, but like, there's just like I've got nothing for that. Um, but then you look at the offseason and what they've done, and it's like – very few teams have had a better offseason. We've kind of already spoken about, obviously, them picking up guys like Danny Green and Terrence Ferguson. Dwight Howard, uh, Seth Curry. 
Dwight Howard, Seth Curry, Ryan Brockov, another Australian as well. So, like, I don't want to get too hyped by the Sixers because I've been burned by them before, but they look to have put together a much better roster than they had last season. You know, Daryl Morey's nailed it, basically. Oh, yeah, they'll be much improved, I think. They'll, they'll be a genuine Eastern Conference Finals threat next season. Yep, until they all get injured again and go, like, 30 and 42 or something. Next, we have the Brooklyn Nets now... Again, this is the second division in a row where we had four teams out of the five competing in the playoffs. They went 35 and 37. They were swept by Toronto in the first round. And really, that wasn't a great surprise with both Irving and Durant out. Their longest winning streak was four between the 21st and 26th of November. Their longest losing streak was seven between December 27 and January 8. They should be much improved next season. Yeah, geez, if you thought the Sixers were ravaged by injuries. So check this out. Kevin Durant played as many games as an actual snake did. Uh, Kyrie Irving missed 52. Karis LeVert missed 27. DeAndre Jordan missed 16. Wilson Chandler missed 37. Iman Shumpert missed 59. Even Jamal Crawford played only six minutes before he got hurt. Like, they had so many guys out for injury. Well, you mentioned snake. They were snake bit, weren't they? They absolutely were. Like they, they had all of their best players missing. I think making the playoffs was a massive overachievement, all things considered, as you as you mentioned. I mean albeit with a losing record. Yeah, but only just. Yeah. yeah. Only just. Look, Spencer Dinwiddie was a massive shining light for them. 20 point per game player, always happy to take the big shot. He just held the fort down while Irving was sidelined. And I think he and Laverta are almost perfect complementary guys to Durant and Kyrie, which is I think why they need to try and avoid this James Harden trade as much as they possibly can. And Dinwiddie's 27 now, so he's really coming into the prime of his career. I'm quite a fan as well. Uh, Yeah, James Harden has said that he would like to go to Brooklyn. The Houston Rockets are under no obligation to send him there. He's still got two years left on his contract. And indeed, this this is one of my favorite quotes from 2020. The Houston Rockets have come out and said they are willing to get uncomfortable with James Harden. Hmm. I don't know what to make of that. And uncomfortable Harden, that's the sort of thing you used to get at the uh, high school swimming carnival. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, all the time in high school. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's it's good to see a team finally pushing back against this. The players have had far too much of the power in these things. and I want to go here so you're going to make it happen. Otherwise, I'm just going to sit out. Well, okay, that's fine. Sit out. Miss yeah, well, out hey, if I'm Houston, your... I'm like, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out, mate. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, I mean, he's he's the one that's going to be missing out on some of his prime if he wants to be a baby and sit out. I mean, if he wants to do what Kawhi Leonard did, let him. But I honestly think the Brooklyn Nets need to have a season where Durant, who's still one of the, the top three players in the league, certainly on the offensive end anyway, gets to to play with Kyrie Irving and this supporting cast. And I think they need to stand pat. If they they stay with the team that they've got, there's no reason why they can't be one of the top seeds in the East. Maybe not one or two, but you'd think that they'd be pushing for a a top four seed. And then lastly for the Atlantic division, the only team that didn't make the playoffs. Geez, that's a bit of a stretch calling them a team. (laughs) The New York Knickerbockers, 21 and 45. Their longest winning streak was four between the 2nd and 9th of February. Their longest losing streak was 10 between the 21st of November and the 11th of December. A little bit of optimism with Obi Toppin, but geez, they're topping heavy at power forward, aren't they? Ah, well done. (laughs) Well done. Yeah, let's get this over and done with. I'm actually very shocked that they had 21 wins looking back on it. Like, 
they just looked like a team that had only won 10. Um, they teed off on some of the really bad teams. They were three and one against Cleveland, two and one against Chicago and, and Atlanta, for example, but just very few wins against quality teams. They're okay on defense. They're hideous on offense. The worst shooting percentage in the league, the worst free throw percentage in the league, lowest three-pointers attempted and made in the league, the lowest assists in the league. Like the only thing they do well is a ton of offensive rebounds and very few turnovers, but you've still got to score. So we've already kind of spoken about how poorly constructed this team was. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of underwhelming names. Reggie Bullock, Wayne Ellington, Taj Gibson... Lerland's Noel, yeah, guys. Damien Dotson, Alonzo well, Trier. Yep, there's so many of these guys. Yeah, I mean, and and Austin Rivers, although they got him at good money, a lot of these guys were, you know, they'd maybe make you somewhat interested about six years ago. But, jeez, uh, the only name on that list I really like is RJ Barrett. So I think it could be lean times yep. ahead for the Knicks for the at least a few more years to come. The one good thing, though, that they do have in their favor is they have the second most practical cap space in the entire league behind OKC. So basically, they've got a shit ton of cash available. They don't and have as the draft we mentioned picks, before, <laughs> well, no, but that's that's true. But what could potentially happen is in a year or two, they've got a heap of money to throw at these at all, all of these free agents, so that two of them can pretend like they want to come to New York and go somewhere else, kind of yes, like what happened like what happens every off so, Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. So now look, All it's, eyes it's, on Janus in, in Milwaukee to see whether he signs that Supermax extension. We'll know that very soon. Well, he better not go to New York. That would be such a waste. Well, I'd rather him go to New York than go to the Lakers or, you know, one of those other teams. True. But uh, no, look, honestly, if, if ever there was a franchise to call a dumpster fire, it is the New York Knicks. Indeed. Quick little tennis update, Stewie. Yeah, so the Nitto final happened, uh, well, last week before we recorded, but unfortunately, because it was a basketball-only episode, we couldn't get to it. So Russia's Daniel Medvedev beat Dominic Thiem 4-6-7-6-6-4 in a really, really entertaining final. Thiem actually won the first set off a really nasty net cord and uh, sort of got a, drew a wry smile out of Medvedev as he walked back to the uh, back to the chair. But look, ultimately, it was Medvedev's movement around the court, his ability to sneak into the net quickly and finish points. That's kind of what saw him over the line. Incredibly, Medvedev became the first player ever to win the tournament, beating the one, two, and three seeds. And with the tournament now moving from London, the first and last time the event was held in London, it was won by a Russian, Nikolai Davidenko, winning it in 2009. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, that but seed it, stat was great, wasn't it? I, I didn't see that as well on Twitter. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a huge effort. It's, it's an absolutely amazing effort. The whole thing was kind of soured a little bit, though. The speech is being cut off, in particular Medvedev's, which I think he only went for about a minute and five seconds, and the female host started talking over him, and then she did it twice. So, like, I read this really, really great tweet about it. There's no more tennis this year. Why are they rushing? Mm. Yeah, all too often we see celebrations and post-match ceremonies cut short, don't we? Or they skip to ad breaks and stuff like that. Got to make their money somehow. It's, it's almost like, you know, when you're, you're watching the Oscars and they play them off because they've been rambling on too much because they're drunk. But it was definitely not the case with, with Medvedev. And he was very, very good at, at saying to the lady, no, 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 I'm not finished. Like, I, one more thing that I want to say. And I say good on him for, for pushing back. You don't win every match, do you? So he deserved his time in the spotlight. Mm, no, I couldn't agree more. Now, if we go back just quickly to the semifinals. So TM beat Novak Djokovic and Medvedev beat Rafa Nadal. So Federer is on his last legs in the sport. Have we seen a changing of the guards of sorts finally with this tournament? I mean, 
like obviously it doesn't discount Djokovic or Nadal from winning more Grand Slams. And I, I kind of wonder if these guys might struggle to beat Rafa and Novak in maybe the five setters in the Grand Slams. But it's less and less surprising every time you see a Medvedev or a Tim or a Sverev or Sitsipas knocking them off. So it, it kind of feels like this might be the changing of the guard finally. Well, you've been alluding to it for weeks, Joey. So we'll, we'll know in the coming months whether or not you're right. But will the Australian Open happen in the coming months? That is the question. Well, geez, that's anyone's guess, isn't it? It really is. I mean, it's seeming like it won't happen at the normal time because they won't be allowed to practice when they're in their 14 day quarantine period and they need to be mm. out of practice. Oh, absolutely. You can't expect guys to, to come in and sort of be swinging, swinging fresh. I mean, they, they need that time. So, yeah, look, I, I really hope it does go ahead. It's, uh, it's obviously you know, one of the majors, it's uh, one of the Grand Slams, sorry, it's a, it's a huge tournament. So um, massive, obviously, for the Victorian government and, and for the, the state of Victoria and, and the, the people working around it and all the hospitality and all of the different parts of, of life. It, it's so important to have these big tournaments going on. If they want to keep hospitality open, though, they might want to delay it because there's a lot of players. I heard there was something like when you include the support staff, we're talking like 500 people coming into the country from really big COVID-19 hotspots. So I actually think the wise thing is to delay. There's been rumours it could be as late as April. If things do calm down a little bit, then that's great. But as we know, there's 200,000 cases a day in the States. So it's very much up in the air, much like a lob. But then I guess the counterpoint is if you are moving it to April, then you've got things like the French Open happening literally a month later and then Wimbledon in sort of that June, July period. So it could be very tough to get all of these tournaments played if it is heavily delayed. So, oh God, it, anyone's guess as to whether this will actually happen. Yes. And now, this week in sport history. November 30th, 1928, Aussie cricket legend Don Bradman makes an inauspicious test debut, scoring 18-1 against England in the first test in Brisbane. He was dropped to 12th man for the second test. He kind of did better after that, though. Yeah, oh, he had an okay career. Reasonable, reasonable. You know. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. Decent. Bad. On November 30th, 1983, trailing hopelessly, Denver Nuggets coach Doug Moe advises his team to let the Portland Trailblazers break their scoring record in a 156 to 116 loss. Five Blazers scored 20 or more and guard Jim Paxson had 19. Portland shot 65% from the field without a single three-point attempt. They led 82-51 at the half, although there was an uncalled backcourt violation in the opening tip, so that might have changed everything. Who knows? Right under but, the umpire's uh, nose too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in, in the closing moments, and, and you and I watched the footage of this, Denver were literally walking out of the way, kind of like what you see in the All-Star Rookie Games when it sort of becomes a dunk comp at the end, and just giving guys like Clyde Drexler a wide-open lane to just oh, go in and do whatever he wanted. Yeah. It really was. This is what I alluded to when you uh, mentioned the uh, match fixing in the crickets, Joey. Yes, yes, it's very much a, uh, a form of it. Although Doug Moe was fined $5,000 and suspended for two games as a result, so he didn't get off scot-free. If I'm the team owner, I would have fired him. Mm. He was a very respected coach in the 80s, though, Doug Moe. So yeah, I, I know, guess... but but like it, that footage is disgraceful. It's on it, YouTube. It Particularly that Clyde Drexler one at the end. And he should have dunked it, by the way. The red carpet was yeah. out for him. Come on, Clyde. We expect more. You're in your rookie season. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, disgraceful. It was. December 1st, 1996, Wayne Gretzky becomes the first and only player in NHL history to reach the 3,000-point plateau, including playoffs, 
when he recorded an assist in the New York Rangers' 6-2 win over the Montreal Canadiens at Madison Square Garden. To put it in perspective, Gretzky is over 1,000 points ahead of Marc Messier in second place and the only player in league history with more than 1,000 goals. What's more, he has 2,223 assists and is the only player with more than 1,400. Yeah, it's interesting this when you look at it. Most sports have kind of a bit of a, you know, that whole goat debate you know obviously we talk about the the whole jordan versus lebron in the nba and and so on and so forth there really is no debate at all in hockey i mean it's it's gretzky and then it's an absolute mile back to second place so yes indeed what absolutely the best December 1st, 1997, Golden State Warriors guard Latrell Sprewell assaults head coach PJ Carlissimo, choking him and threatening to kill him after Carlissimo told Sprewell in a training session that he wasn't passing the ball hard enough. After going to the locker room to shower and change, Sprewell came back and punched Carlissimo in the face. Sprewell was initially suspended for 10 games before the league suspended him for a year. Now, the Warriors tried unsuccessfully to void his contract, but eventually had to settle for trading him to the Knicks for 38-year-old Terry Cummings, 34-year-old John Starks, and Chris Mills, Mm. starting an eight-year run of missing the playoffs, including a 19-63 record in the 99-2000 season, followed by a 17-65 record the following year. Oh, God, Stewie, there's so much to unpack here. We could almost do a whole episode on this. Sprewell then went to the Knicks, who made the NBA Finals the following year. PJ Carlissimo is one of my favorite ESPN analysts, actually. He's absolutely fantastic. Uh, Him and Bill Polian are my two favorite ESPN analysts. And what some people forget is he was the coach of the Seton Hall Pirates that recruited Andrew Gaze that went to the national championship game where they lost to Michigan. Michigan, yeah. That that, uh, Glenn Rice, Rumil Robinson, Terry Mills team. Very good side. And the other funny thing about this is we used to have silent reading after lunchtime at uh, high school and I had a copy of a one-on-one and I just pull out the exact same copy of the one-on-one every single post-lunchtime break and silent reading pretending to read. And funnily enough, it's the one-on-one edition that detailed this story. What a bizarre incident. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you crazy go. incident. And and he got, that, that- he got a bigger suspension than Ron Artest did for Malice in the Palace. Yeah, he did too. That's very, very true. Very true. Just out of interest, that was that was the one-on-one that you would bring out and have one of the teachers take off you and so he could read it. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, our math teacher. Yes, he'd always yep. want to borrow it so he could read it. So I had nothing to read. Then finally, December 6th, 1956, against the background of the Soviet invasion of Hungary, the two nations squared off at the Melbourne Olympics in one of the most brutal water polo matches ever, and it is a brutal sport, nicknamed Blood in the Water Match. With Hungary leading 4-0, the game was called off and a near riot was halted by police. The game was named as such because Hungarian Irvin Zador emerged from the pool in the final minute of the game with blood pouring from just above his eye after he was punched by Soviet player Valentin Prokopov. The event was depicted in the movie Freedom's Fury some 50 years later in 2006. This Week in Sport History there's so much going on in the world of football codes, Joey. We'll leave NFL and EPL for now, and we will come back to them. And there is a lot going on and a lot of interesting stuff too. But we'll continue with our AFL season in review. And we enter the top eight, but we're working from the bottom up. So we go with ninth, the Melbourne Demons. They finished nine and eight, five and 17 last season in 17 spots. So they rose eight spots. Their longest winning streak was three games between rounds 10 and 12. Their longest losing streak was two, three times. Their biggest scalp was either St Kilda by three in round 14 or Collingwood by 56 in round 12. Their biggest loss was to Sydney by 21 and Freo by 14 in back-to-back rounds in rounds 15 and 16 when they still had faint top four aspirations. So take your 
pick there. And their win-loss against the top eight and bottom ten pretty much sum it up. Two and six against the top eight, seven and two against the bottom ten, which is why they just missed the finals. You probably have to uh, give them a, a, a fairly fitting D as their as their grade here. They absolutely Melbourne the fuck out of this season, <laughs> as you mentioned. I mean, they beat St Kilda, they beat Collingwood, and then they lose to Sydney and Fremantle. They put in great efforts against Brisbane and Geelong, and they throw in howlers against Port and the Bulldogs. Uh, only the Demons could rise eight spots and still be a disappointment. Yeah, and they probably should have won that Brisbane game too. So you're right. They did. They did. Yeah. A D seems harsh when they did rise eight spots. I'll give them a C or C minus, but yeah, disappointing season once again when they have such great young players like Petrarca. Yeah, I mean, he's an absolute gun. He looks destined to threaten for a Brownlow again next season. Max Gorn was excellent. Clayton Oliver was as well. Ed Langdon, who I, I still remember best for having a hole-in-one on a par four while he was playing for the Dockers over here. <laughs> just like like so many demons, though, he was really good. He just didn't always have that polish needed to take over a game. You just hope for Simon Goodwin's sake that they can find some consistency next season. Like Sam Wiedemann looks like a pretty nice target up forward, very lively. But um, yeah, I mean, for a team that was hideous for their scores per inside 50, they just need to find a target. Uh, Oscar McDonald was absolutely terrible, unfortunately. So uh, they're just, yeah, they were just so up and down. And unfortunately, yeah, I mean, I originally had them as a C minus, but I changed it on the fly to a D because I just, I looked at, some of those results that that we've got in front of us and they're just they're just not great reading unfortunately harley bunnell they took a punt on he again unfortunately his career is well and truly done now that uh, that punt went over the sideline on the full yeah pretty much into the top eight now collingwood finished in eighth spot with nine seven and one they were 15 and seven last season in fourth place their longest winning streak with two wins and a draw in the first three rounds of the season the longest losing streak was two twice the biggest scalp was geelong by 22 in round seven who were of course the grand finalists the biggest loss was to melbourne as we alluded to earlier 56 in round 12 they were three three and one against the top eight they were six and four against the bottom 10 the random observation is they lost to both wa teams back-to-back weeks in rounds eight and nine but they of course there are say Stewie had revenge on the Eagles in that first week of the finals well they got revenge on me straight away because my my pointer finger on my right hand is still stuffed from that game because I remember doing a a big wind-up windmill and absolutely smashing my hand off the side of a a solid wooden chair and it hasn't been right ever since so there you go Mm. but uh yeah the, the, the pies are another one that really difficult to grade I mean in terms of if you take into account all the stuff that's happened off the field since, you know, since the season's finished as well, I mean, you, geez, you could argue it was not far above an F, but. Um, well, their I off guess, season was an F, that's for sure. Oh, well and truly, well and truly. I mean, I, I gave them a C minus, and that was probably only because of their final win over here against West Coast. Just so many distractions this season from that steel side bottom drunkenness to Nathan Buckley and Brenton Sanderson's COVID Cup tennis match. And, just yeah, the way they handled Adam Trelaw and so many other players' situations after the season was over. Eddie McGuire the, being a hypocrite in the media as well. Yep, exactly. So many things off the park. On the park, like the Demons, they were just far too inconsistent. They pants the Bulldogs and St Kilda, and then they sandwich that with a, a draw to Richmond in the opening three rounds. But not long after that, they lose to Essendon. They handle Geelong, then they get flogged by West Coast and beaten by Fremantle, and they get run pretty close by Sydney. Like It's no secret that the Pies had a hideous injury list highlighted by that really sickening knee injury to Jeremy Howe. And that's true, but, and that's why I give them a B-, especially with that finals win too. 
But I'll tell you what, they've finally seen what it's like to be away from home, and I dare say they will be praying for the MCG next season. So. <laughs> they sure will. And don't order any of those calendars if you uh, were an Adam Trelaw fan. Yeah, this is true. I mean, look, they did have some pretty big wins personnel-wise. I mean, Braden Maynard, Darcy Moore, Jack Crisp, and Taylor Adams all went to the next step. So you kind of feel like, unfortunately, because they had such a piss-poor off-season, their window might be closed, but you know some of those those guys might just pry it back open. You just never know with Collingwood on the day. Darcy Moore is an excellent player. He's he's one of the best backs in the entire league. I'm a big fan of his. I, I think they'll still go all right next season. They just rely far too much on their defence, though, and that that's a worry. But yeah, I think I think they'll be hovering around that eighth spot once again next year. Then finally for this week in seventh spot, the Western Bulldogs, 10 wins, 7 losses. They were 12-10 and 10 last season in seventh place, so it was a push. Their longest winning streak was three games twice. Their longest losing streak was three games between round 9 and round 11. Their biggest scalp was the Eagles by two in round 16. Uh, again, I know one that you don't have great memories about, Stewie. Absolutely nothing to do with a dodgy umpiring decision on the goal line there, no. <laughs> And their biggest loss was to Carlton by 52 in round six. They were one and six against the top eight, so probably making up the numbers in the finals, even though I picked them against St Kilda. And they were nine and one against the bottom 10. So they certainly beat up that bottom rung of the ladder, but they didn't do much against the teams above them. Yeah, I'm going to give them a B plus. That's half about the results and half about them absolutely winning the free agency period. So uh, look, in terms of on-field success, yeah, very similar to 2019, finished 7th, as you mentioned. They lost in an elimination final both times, although unlike the GWS game last year, they actually probably expected to beat St Kilda this year. So they're probably, uh, yeah, underachieved in that regard. They did have some key wins, though. Aaron Norton, I thought, was brilliant. The progression of Caleb Daniel to an All-Australian. Young guns like Bailey Smith, Latham Vandermeer, Josh Dunkley, Patrick Lipinski. But unfortunately, the flip side was guys like Josh Bruce and Bailey Dale just didn't really go to the plan that they were expecting. And then the second half fade out from Tim English was pretty disappointing. So Yeah, after we sung his down. praises a lot early in the season. Yeah, he definitely he kind of did a, a Tom Papley and kind of went from that All-Australian position probably to uh to dropping out very very quickly and it's got to be said there could be some chemistry issues on the horizon because josh dunkley wanted to be traded but they ended up keeping him and the reason he wanted to be traded is because he wanted more time in the midfield and they got another midfielder indeed a very good midfielder in adam trelaw so could be interesting next season look at the end of the day though if you have the opportunity to pick up adam trelaw for some draft picks. I mean, they did the same with Stefan Martin and Mitch Hannon. You've kind of got to get those guys. I mean, oh yeah, especially when you're not even paying his full salary. Exactly. So, I mean, it shores up some of the key parts of the field for the dogs. You combine that with what they already have. Anything less than the top four position will be a failure for them next season. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'll give them a B minus. Cool. We'll continue working our way up from St Kilda in sixth place next week, but. Gee, the time goes quick, Stewie. We're at the end once again. What are you amped for? I mean, I guess it's got to be the one day in T20 cricket, in particular the one day between the Candy Tuskers and Jaffna Stallions in the Lanka Premier League <laughs> and the T20 between Fortune Baruchel and Gazi Group Chattergram in the Bunga Bundu T20 Cup. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, How about yourself, mate? Well, I'm, I'm also amped for some one-dayers and some uh, T20s. Not nearly as important, but I will keep a bit of an eye on the Australia versus India. I guess so. We have to. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes. Sport Blokes.